HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host here on Heritage Radio Network. And today we are talking about something that might surprise some people. I'm going to ask you out there, who hasn't been on a diet at some point? Well, let me see. Anyone over the age of 35, at least. (laughs) But probably younger than that. Who hasn't been on a diet? I mean, just think about it. Slim Fast, Atkins, Weight Watchers, Nutrisystem, Jenny Craig, South Beach. The list goes on and on. There are programs out there that are begging us to try to lose weight. And yet, as a nation, we are, I guess, probably about 70% overweight. And today I have with me um, Susan Yeager, who is an adjunct instructor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University, and she is the author of the just-published book called The 100-Year Diet, America's Voracious Appetite for Losing Weight. Welcome, Susan. Hi, Linda. Great to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's And it's true. America has such an appetite for losing weight, and yet we're an obese nation, they tell us. We are indeed. I mean... Think about it. We spend $55 billion Bill- a year. That's billions? That's billions. Wow. That's billions. You know, as I like to say, say, more than the gross national product of many small countries, $55 billion. And what do we get for it? We're number one. We're the fattest country in the world. Uh, and you have to ask, how did that happen? Mm. 
Uh, you know, this is something I, uh, I've been thinking about a great deal for the past seven years, how it came about. We didn't actually start gaining all this weight, um, Linda, and we may want to talk about this a bit later, but um, we didn't start gaining until about 1985. That's when all the bad habits and everything began to catch up to us. Was that when when we when did we first get those charts about how much what should we weigh the BMI? And oh the, you know? well, BMI started way way before that. Actually, that was a Belgian scientist who came up with that in the 1840s. We knew what we should weigh, but the thing is that most Americans fell pretty much into that ideal area. Um, we were. We were kind of, we had weight loss forced upon us long before we were a heavy country. As soon as people started figuring out there's money to be made and getting people to think they're heavy, they started selling us on weight loss diets. Really big weight loss got started in the 60s. That's Mm -hmm. the 1960s. Well, in fact, I I do want to step back a little bit because you you say the 100-year diet, and certainly... uh, dieting goes back a lot longer than 100 years. Oh, yes. I mean, oh, in, the, yes. in the Renaissance, we had uh, the, the humorists, and people were eating certain foods for certain parts of their body. And, I mean, we're talking millennia. Absolutely. I mean, Hippocrates speaks about corpulence, about about people who weigh too much. There have always been people who weigh too much, you know, Falstaff and Rubenesque women. Um, we, we started worrying about weighing too too much in America around 1880. But very few people did, really. It was the wealthy, it was the people with time on their hands that, that dieted, or as they called it at that time, they were banting. Banting, right. I mean, yeah. I read that, I read that particular yeah. chapter, and we'll talk about that. Well, actually, corpulence was associated with wealth for a long time oh you're so that that's the thing i mean if you weighed a little too much i mean think about the turn of the 20th century here's diamond jim brady wealthy uh businessman famous for being a glutton Hmm. and weighing too much well it showed that he had the money to eat too much. And his girlfriend was Lillian Russell. Again, you know, this famous performer at the time. Big, (laughs) voluptuous woman. It was thought to be terrific if you had a little flesh on you if you were a woman. That's right. It showed that you were fertile. You were good wife material. Um, If you got sick, no antibiotics yet. That's right. Think about that. So if you got sick, you had a few extra pounds, kind of money in the bank. So it wasn't really um, a particular negative to, to be a bit heavy. Obese, yes, that was never anything that was looked upon right. particularly favorably. I mean, you just look back at in art history at paintings, and and the, the men generally were uh, portrayed as slimmer and more fit, but the women, mm-hmm. it was desirable to have, to, mm-hmm. and you say that corpulent body. A sign and, of beauty, yeah, a sign of fertility, yeah. of mm-hmm. sexiness. Right. <laughs> How far we've come How from the emaciated indeed. models we see today, right? Well, um, you mentioned that in the um, in the sixty, well, actually, probably eighteen in the eighteen hundreds, where we uh, you sort of start out in your history with Fletcher. And well, yeah, he came along a little later, around the turn of yeah. the century, and he is a very interesting character. I mean, here's this guy Horace Fletcher, who can't get insurance because he weighs too much. 
and he doesn't know what to do about this. He becomes obsessed with it. He tries different diets. How many of us have done this? Nothing works for him. And then he comes across some literature about chewing, masticating, chewing your food numerous, numerous times, and you will lose weight. And he does this, and it works for him. Why does it work? Well, there are a variety of reasons. One is, if you slow down eating to that extent, um, you probably will eat less. Right. It's going to become boring. Who wants to chew everything a hundred times? He, pr- <laughs> he printed little cards. As to how so we got the term Fletcherized. People yeah, you would make Fletcherize, them Fletcherize they, called, food. they called him the great <laughs> masticator. They called him the choo-choo man. <laughs> but he, I love this. This really caught on in America, chewing your food a hundred times. I don't like to say ever, you know, as, as uh, an historian, everyone did something, but it was pretty close. I mean, the middle class was doing it, the wealthy were doing it, the prisoners at Sing Sing were doing it. Oh, my goodness. Everyone was chewing. Rich people, society people, would get together and have what they called munchens, not luncheons, but munchens, <laughs> and they would have these bowls. <laughs> under them, and they would take their food. Now, this was the rich, you know, the rich people, eccentric, right? Poor people would be considered crazy if they did this, but they were eccentric. They had their food, and they had someone standing there, and that person would ring a bell, and they would chew and chew and chew and (laughs) chew and chew chew at the munchens until he rang a bell again, and then they were allowed to swallow. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's and it is known that the brain takes a while. It takes a while for the brain to receive the signals from the stomach that you're full, right? You (laughs) are absolutely right. It takes about 20 minutes. Well, if you're Fletcherizing, your brain's going to have a chance to to really catch up to that. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's it's a funny and a funny story, but it's not a funny situation. And a lot of people will attribute try to attribute our obesity as a nation to processed foods, fast foods, our lack of um, dining together as a family, of of running around too much. I don't Mm -hmm. think we can really lay blame to any one thing. Well, because it's all of those things. It's it's like solving the obesity problem in America today, and it indeed is an epidemic and a serious problem. Um, you know, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, uh, the psychological ramifications of being obese, so many things to have health care issues, uh, the cost of it. It's a big problem, but it won't be solved by just one thing. It will be solved by many things being done. And, mm-hmm. and a big part of that is education. Right. And which is what we try to do here at Heritage Radio Network. And, um, bring people back into the world of real food, yeah, which I, I mean, think is, is, you know, is going to make a, a big difference. Absolutely. People. You mentioned processed food a moment ago. And I think a little earlier said that we didn't start really gaining weight until 1985. Well, why is this? Yes, certain things were catching up to us, the suburbs, fast food, we're driving more, we're um, doing a lot of things perhaps differently than we did before. But also what happened? I mean, we're subsidizing corn. We're subsidizing soy. High fructose corn syrup is discovered. Mm -hmm. And it starts getting into everything. everything. By the 80s, it is allowing 
soda, which was, let, let's just look at soda for mm-hmm. a moment. You know, we, we all read about that maybe in the paper this morning. Well, the, yeah, you know? look at the campaign. So, New York so, yeah, City started yeah. so, a campaign So, so let's, let's talk about that for a minute. You know, soda at that time was about 3%, actually less, about 2.5% of our calories per capita. All of a sudden, you know, what was the soda when we were kids? Six ounces, 12 ounces maybe. All of a sudden in the 80s, supersizing, there were big gulps, 34 ounces, bigger gulps, 64 ounces. And just calorically sweetened soda becomes at least 7% of the average calories that people are taking in. That alone is a major impact on the obesity problem right. in this country. Well, Mayor Bloomberg and his staff have been in the health staff, have, yeah, have been trying to uh, to approach this with school children particularly, but everyone in the obesity um, epidemic. And there is, for those who um, maybe haven't heard about it yet or don't live in the New York City area, they have had a couple of public service um, videos out there, and a new one was just launched, and it shows this young man sitting at a counter opening up packets of sugar and downing 16, 18, whatever, I'm not sure how many packets of sugar that you find, you know, on the counter of the diner. And people are looking at him in disgust when then he turns and actually there is that much, if not more, in these glasses of soda that they're, sugared soda that they're drinking. Yes. I mean, if we could just... Pouring on the fat. That's what they call pouring on the fat. Yes. I mean, it's empty calories, has no nutritive value. You may have seen in the paper, uh, Bloomberg and Patterson are trying to have food stamps um, not be able to To buy soda. soda. Right. Well, that's that's a great idea. I I mean, we can't police what people eat. Well, really. they but, certainly can buy soda without food stamps. But, food, but if, if they are going to buy soda, perhaps gonna, they'll buy some vegetables or fruits exactly. or a, a, better, a better food. Right. Let's subsidize good nutrition. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, you wrote something very interesting, and that is about the calorie that everyone just, you know, assumes calories were always known and, and calorie values were known for food. But this is something that came quite late. Yeah, it, it did. I mean, it... it Began, um, they began to be quantified in Germany, uh, the, what they call the father of dietetics, a man named von Voigt. And our own Wilbur Olin Atwater, the first head of the USDA and a chemist at Wesleyan University, he visited Voigt and other people in Germany. He saw what they were doing. And he came back to America and he got a grant for $10,000. Now, this is a tremendous amount of money. The average worker made about $500 a year. Hmm. This is in 1894. He got this grant, $10,000, and he built, along with a physicist, a calorimeter. He measured calories. He knew that carbohydrates and protein had four calories per gram. He knew that fat had nine. That had been established. Mm-hmm. But what he did was measure the calories in just about every common food that we consumed. A lot easier than the now, no processed foods. He could just, he's just worried about a carrot and a piece of beef, you know. But he did this, and he printed them all in Farmer's Bulletin number 23. What a boring title for something that had probably more impact on the way we ate in America for the next hundred years than anything else. Suddenly, all of the calories were listed in this book, booklet. And this wasn't all that water did. 
it was thought that alcohol had no calories. Mm-hmm. Well, he measured alcohol. He said, oops, yeah. <laughs> you know, seven calories a gram. So maybe we should watch that a little bit. And also, people said, well, you know, calories aren't calories and they're all different. He hooked people up to bicycles on, on his calorimeter mm-hmm. and, and the respirator. And he fed them great athletes, all-fat diet or all-carbohydrate diet. And what did he find out? They expended exactly the same amount of energy. That's what calories are, energy. Whether they were having fat or whether they were having carbohydrates. He actually ended that whole debate before the turn of the 20th century. Before all these fad diets even developed. It's been going on forever, you know, because a lot of pseudoscience was going on there too. And reverentially, the pseudoscience will be, you know, referred to if someone says, oh, only carbs or oh, only fat. Right. But the truth is a calorie is is a a calorie. calorie Is a calorie. Yeah. Actually, that's that's always been my mantra. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Count the calories, right. Um, So $55 billion. Oh, Coming into that, so you make me think right away, you're talking about calories a calorie, all of these fad diets, who who amongst all the big fads were the, was the, was the biggest um, in terms of money makers? Well, in terms of money makers, now let's put aside here, uh, probably the biggest money maker is, is Weight Watchers. Wait, well, because it's ongoing but, and has been for a long time, that's ongoing. Right? It's a franchise. It gives pretty good information. If people need support, Weight Watchers is a, it's a good place to go. Right. So, so is Tops. That's take off pounds sensibly. And so is Overeaters Anonymous. Anonymous. I mean, mm-hmm. these, these are all places that give good support. And actually, Tops and, and OA are nonprofits. Uh, Weight Watchers, you do pay, but it's not much of a fee. But let's talk about people who have made a really lot of money. Well, we can talk about the over-the-counter um, amphetamines, speed, right. things that speed up your metabolism. There's a lot of money to be made there. Until SlimFest, you- and SlimFest started out, I think, to be... They had to go well, back to the FDA and, and change their Yeah, yeah, their, but that's, that's a product. liquid crash. There mm-hmm. was a lot of money to be made there, too. Metrical was the first mm-hmm. one in, in mm-hmm. the 60s. Um, the huge money probably goes to low-carb, I would think, overall. Atkins being the king Atkins. of low-carb. Atkins the one, of course, that we, that, we most, yes, death, that we most you know. remember. Yeah, but, but this started, oh, well, the first low-carb diet came along in, in the 1880s. When um, a man, Wilhelm Epstein, a, a scientist in, in Germany, he thought he was theorizing. Mm-hmm. You know, Atwater didn't even have his booklet yet, and not much was known. He was theorizing that fat and carbs burn differently. He thought that only fat got used as energy, only carbs got stored as fat. fat. He knew that fat had more than twice the calories per gram or pound than carbohydrate. And so much of this, I should mention, Linda, all of this research had nothing to do with weight loss. No one gave that a thought, these scientists. Mm -hmm. They were mainly concerned with feeding people in the best possible way, particularly the poor. Mm -hmm. And Epstein um, was the director of the poor house in his town in Germany. So he loved fat. You know, he thought the more fat they can eat, the more calories they get, it's cheap. Nothing was known about vitamins or anything right. else. So he theorized this. This is still referred to by the low-carb people. Well, Dr. Epstein says, you know, <laughs> fat gets, gets 
burned off. You know, you can't get fat with fat. So what happens in the 1960s? Publishing companies began to think there's a lot of money to be made in weight loss books. books. And along comes a guy, Herman Taller, a Romanian gynecologist, who publishes a book, Calories Don't Count. 5,000 calories a day as long as you drink a glass of safflower oil with every meal and don't eat carbohydrates. <laughs> did, okay? he, did he include the calories in the safflower oil in the 5,000? No, or? he didn't. He didn't because he said probably most people won't, won't want to drink safflower oil. <laughs> but wait, you can buy them from me through the uh-huh. mail. CDC Corporation, Safflower Oil Pills. He and Simon Schuster, two executives, started this corporation. They sold the pills through the mail, and that was their their Achilles heel. That was their downfall. He was actually um, indicted and convicted of mail fraud. People knew. This diet was crazy. Yeah. But, you know, we have freedom of speech. You can write whatever you want to write in, in America. You know, you can publish fad diet books and not get into That's trouble. Right. Well, there what are, you can't do is, is send, send the stuff through right. the mail. Uh, we, uh, there are a lot of other fad diets that took place, no matter. And we're going to talk about more of those when we come back after a short break. We're back on A Taste of the Past with Susan Yeager, and we're talking about the 100-year diet. Probably, as we said, it's dieting has been going on for a lot longer than 100 years, but our country is just obsessed with diets, uh, different diets, and, and yet we remain to be the, the leading nation in obesity. Right. Um, we were talking about some of the dangerous things that were being sold and things that were um, and fad diets that, were, that are I guess um, not weight loss diets whatsoever, and a lot of the a lot of fads have come and gone. Some of them um, were actually healthy diets, you know, such as South Beach diet, which is still active. That was it's actually a healthy healthy eating plan. It is certainly an improvement. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an Atkins light. Mm-hmm. Um, the terrible thing about the Atkins diet and some of the other low carb plans was that they they put vegetables and fruits. In off with the list, all carbohydrates. Yeah, exactly. Right. Atkins did not allow fruits and vegetables. Now, they I didn't differentiate between complex carbohydrates and, and simple, simple carbohydrates. carbohydrates. And that's one thing. And then they said no carbohydrates, you know, zero carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. At least South Beach 
um, does allow for fruits and vegetables and whole grains. I myself have nothing against white foods. <laughs> the, Rice, the white, that's always going to bring pasta, that up, the white food diet. Bread. Right. These are the staples of so many cultures. My goodness, all you have to do is look at the Asian cultures that are very often rice-based diets. These are the thinnest countries in the world. In fact, I wanted to bring up a point about the Asian diet. Um, Two of my friends, one who's been on the show and another one I was just talking to the other day, both Asian and come from, um, you know, when they they sit down with their family, their uh, traditional Asian family, the grandmothers and... He said, it's, it's incredible. We eat and think about food. All, we don't eat all the time, but we think about food all the time. And while we're eating our lunch, we're talking about what we're going to have for dinner. <laughs> she said, we talk, talk, both of them women, say talk, talk, talk about food all the time. And the one um, woman whose brother-in-law is not Asian said, I cannot believe that your family is not all obese because all you do is talk about food and plan your meals. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because they... They do talk about it, and they plan it carefully, right? but they're not eating all but the time. There, right. There are two factors here. One is, the at least in, in the Japanese culture, there is, and, and many um, Chinese uh, people that I know as well, and I've spent a lot of time in China, there is a, a reference for food. It's a respect for food, and that's a big part of it, and that's something that I hope we get back mm-hmm. in our country. And also, of course, the Asian diets do tend to be, because they are low-fat, they don't use a lot of fat in their diet. They don't use a lot of animal protein. It's more a condiment, a spice, than it is, you know, the big center mm-hmm. of the plate. And those are the things that that help in, in controlling weight. There is almost no obesity um, in Japan, Korea, the various Asian cultures. Yeah, interesting. And, um, of course, there um it's it's interesting but, to oh, oh, oh may, I, may I interject yeah, sure. though? There's also very little obesity. The latest OECD Factbook figures just came out two weeks ago. Very little in let's say Italy, France. Mm-hmm. These are countries also that revere revere food, food. and they and they respect it. Quality. I've said often on on um, many of my shows that figures state that America as a country spends less. Per capita on their market basket than any mm-hmm. other than yeah. any other uh, yes. civilized I, you know I, I speak about first that world in the book. country we we actually spent a lot more at the turn of the twentieth century mm-hmm. about probably about fifty percent of of income went for food but again as things were subsidized corn and soy um, subsidies lead to not only the the high fructose corn sugar that we spoke of earlier but of course to fattening beef and other animal foods, um, shooting them with mm-hmm. hormones and antibiotics. They're not something that we, we should be eating, right. but nevertheless, they're very, very inexpensive. So let's hear it for sustainably raised products. Indeed. And, and, I mean, or let's the organic movement is good, I mean, but just it, you don't have to go organic. So just, just, you know, good, whole, real food that uh, sure. you know where it comes from. We're lucky in New York City. We have so many, and the area, we have so many farmer's markets mm-hmm. available now all over. And I think that that's a, a growing trend in most cities. And, yes, And certainly is. anyone who's ever gardened, I mean, when you finally get that pepper or that, that ear of corn, I mean, 
it it's very special. You respect it and you taste it differently. So if you really that once again that reverence for food, if you really appreciate what the product is and taste it, not just try to eat you know, so much uh, of processed food that really is not satisfying. You have to eat twice as much. Well, you know? I would be happy if people did not ever eat processed food. You know, period. Never. I. I mean, I. I. That. I think that's a big part of the solution. Mm-hmm. It's and it's interesting too. Aside from being big industry, as you say, the, you know, the the um, corn uh, coming with the corn syrup and the and the the soy products and things that were developed to increase shelf life, increase production, make, you know, things grew faster and bigger and better. They were also, a lot of processed foods were developed to make the woman's life easier in the kitchen. Oh, yes, of course. Women were sold on that as well. And indeed, as they went back to the workforce, they did start to cook less. And that's another part of the puzzle. We have got to start cooking again. We have got to start teaching it in, in our schools. If people don't know how to cook, how can they ever really nourish themselves and feed themselves well, it's yeah. not it's not possible. But you know, right now we are producing per capita. I'm not saying eating, but producing 700 more calories a day than we need. Mm. Now, what's big food going to do with this? Feed it to us. What right. else can they do with it? Retail space has doubled since 1995. One of the reasons is. I mean, you can't go into a mass merchant anymore without finding a supermarket. I can't go into a local drugstore without finding a supermarket anymore. That's right. Anymore. That's right. They've got their whole they food gotta, section on one aisle. Got to sell it yeah. to us. Yeah. Got to get rid of those 700 calories a That's day. Right. And right. we've got to say, no, we don't want them. And the sad fact is, too, is that we have still a very high hungry population, people who aren't getting enough to eat. And that's, that's inexcusable. Yes, it is. Um, yes, it certainly is. I wish we could solve all of those yes. problems. Um, you, you did talk. We talked about um, oh the Asian uh, population, but also, and and um, Italy and France and European countries who appreciate food, appreciate good food, quality ingredients. If you taste, uh, you have to eat a lot less of a very high quality ingredient to be satisfied. The other point I think is sitting down at a meal together. And that's something that has fallen apart in this country. Um, was it Escoffier or, or one of the, and you mentioned it in your book as well, mm-hmm. said if you, you, can, you can tell a lot about a civilization if you sit down to dinner with them. Well, kind of hard to do in America. Yeah, yeah, and that is unfortunate. Yeah. And that has been happening more and more um, over the past decades. And it's a big part of it. You know, grabbing a high-calorie, you know, microwave meal uh, isn't isn't going to help anybody. It's not going to help your health. It's not going to help you, the way you feel. It's not going to help anything. Yeah. Well, then that's led to this this uh, epidemic and obesity has led to um, to horrendous health problems and and an increase in in the healthcare costs for sure. Abs- absolutely. Yeah. Diabetes being number one, obviously. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. But you know, one of the things as I wrote this book that I came to really dislike about all of these fad diets the most is that, firstly, they're all the same. People say to me, um, well, does any diet work, Susan? You write this book, all you say is don't diet, don't diet. And the truth is they all do because they're all just low-calorie glands Mm -hmm. masquerading as something else. 
and no one can stick to them. It's not possible. Who wants to live a life without pasta, without rice, without bread, or without fat, for that matter? It's not the Western way of eating. We like sautéing things in some olive oil. We (laughs) like dressing on our salad. And that's not a bad thing. And it's a good thing. But what I dislike so much about these diets is that people try them and they fail because they have to. No one's going to stay with it. And, you know, it's not like I've never dieted, believe me. I've been on my share of loopy <laughs> diets, too. And then, you know, you fail. And then you beat yourself up. And then you try again. And then you fail again. And eventually, what can happen? Apathy can set in. And I've had friends say to me, that's it. Life is too short. I'm going to eat what I want. Right. They just give up. And I really believe that this this love affair with weight loss diets has helped get us to where we are as much as the high fructose corn syrup and the palm oil and the processed foods right. and everything else. It's another piece of, of an unfortunate puzzle that has to be solved. But it's not yo-yo dieting so much as it is just I, I mean, with this exponential, as you mentioned, exponential you know weight gain. Mm-hmm. Lose it and gain a little bit more. Yes. But gain it back and then some. Yeah. And Although I'm, and I, I do... I do um, agree with some of the dieting theories that you have to you kind of have to jump start a diet if what is a first of all diet diet is what we eat which should be a healthy diet <laughs> and that and that should be a, a life plan diet right exactly but it, i mean certainly if if one is obese or, or severely overweight i mean you have to jump start the the um a healthy diet plan in other words you're eating too obviously you're eating too much of something you've got to cut out something that you're consuming and then adopt a reasonable healthy life plan and diet plan and eat good foods but i think we're speaking of of two different things in a sense in that if one is as you say severely obese Mm -hmm. or morbidly Morbidly obese. obese there there may be psychological reasons for this mm-hmm. um there may be genetic reasons for this there may be hormonal there are certain triggers it's a very small part of the population but some people store weight differently than the rest of us and some people have psychological reasons for not wanting to be thin so many different things that a morbidly obese person really has to to seriously deal with perhaps a psychologist, perhaps a nutritionist, perhaps a physician. This isn't someone that just, right. you know, needs to lose 20 pounds or 30 pounds. Right. Very different situation. But people do have to look very honestly at their at their daily diet and figure out, well, why? Why? Why did I gain this? What am I eating? What does my diet consist well, of? Well, of course, if we're eating even a portion of that 700 extra calories <laughs> every day, say 400 of them or mm-hmm. 500 of them, which we probably are, per capita or we couldn't be you know that's how we've gotten from from 1985 to today to be in this in this position i mean in 1980 about 25 percent of the country or so was obese or overweight now it's almost 70 percent that's yeah that's that's takes a lot of calories to do that not just an extra teaspoon of sugar (laughs) (laughs) well before the show you were telling me about um a course that you teach at the food studies program at nyu and it's a course on sustainability Yes, I actually co-teach this course. Another um, instructor and myself um, 
lead a group of graduate students every year. We did it. We just did it last weekend for the third year in a row uh, through the east end of Long Island. Um, I have a home actually on Shelter Island. I've been there since 1993 on weekends, and um, we go to various wonderful um, local farmers, aquaculture, agriculture people, and see, oh my goodness, there's a biodynamic woman, uh, K.K. Haspel, on on the North Fork. She has five acres of land. I can't, and, and produces flowers on one of the acres. So on four acres of land, she produces more food than, than you could ever possibly imagine. And it is so beautiful and so delicious. Um, people of that sort, you mm-hmm. know, seeing what people are doing out there. People making cheese, a few cows, they all have names, you know, wonderful. Milk them uh, by hand and make wonderful cheeses. There are wonderful things going on um, right around us, you know, within 100 miles of where we are. And it, it's, it's heartfelt. And, and some people have been farming this way by the way, out on the East End for 350 or 400 years. Well, so you talk about sustainable. Exactly. And, and it's, it's funny that we have come kind of full circle because, as I've said before, this is, that was the only way to eat you know, hundreds of years ago, you ate what the farmer produced, or you ate, you know, you ate locally, and you ate seasonally, and absolutely, and you ate what was grown, right. and uh, and until after the Second World War, uh, when so much was learned about chemicals and pesticides, and you know, let's not forget, they thought they were doing the right thing yes. by spraying with DDT. They right. thought this was a good thing to do, and and there were people that said, wait a minute, maybe we should test more, but you know, but they thought this was the right thing to do. Well, before that. There were yeah, there were no hormones in food. There were no antibiotics in in meat. Um, vegetables weren't sprayed. Mm-hmm. This it didn't exist. We like it all to look uniform and be packaged, you know, perfectly. And That's right. Not not that beauty of a, of a heritage um, piece of, of fruit or a heritage tomato. You know, I I I think the beauty kind of lies in the. Not perfect the, the, myself. Ugly but, but beautiful. Right? Yeah. I, <laughs> little, I, the unevenness I, and I the do. non-perfect. I do. I think that's so beautiful. Yeah. Well, um, I know that you are going to be, um, I saw it in uh, one of the blurbs about your book, that you are going to be speaking about um, your book and the preoccupation with weight at the CIA, the Culinary Institute of yes, America. Yes, on October 19th, um, the very nice duly lecture series mm. that they have there. Um, October 19th, I believe it, it's, at, it's at 2 o'clock. Um, this is a free series that CIA does, and it's beautiful up there for anyone who hasn't right. been up to the Culinary Institute. It is a beautiful campus. Well, and, and again, it's the 100-year diet America's voracious appetite for losing weight. And I thank our guest, Susan Yeager, for enlightening us on the history of dieting. We can, if you look at the book, you can find out how, just how many diets, and I'm sure many of us have been on many of them, but it's been going on for years and years. And hopefully we can turn that around and have everyone eat good food. Let's hope. That's why I wrote the book. (laughs) Thank you, Linda. Well, I'm Linda Palaccio, and you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. I would like to thank our executive producer, Jack Inslee, and the engineer, Nat Wiener.
For appearing on A Taste of the Past today, Susan receives a free 365-day gift card, complimentary of Zagat.com. Use this 365-day Zagat.com gift card to enjoy trusted Zagat ratings and reviews derived from the opinions of 375,000 surveyors across the globe, all conveniently located in one place. For more information, visit www.zagat.com. Thanks for listening.